You're listening to Country Music Success Stories featuring Music City mentor J.C. Don Valeris. Now, here's your host, Candy O'Terry. Big news. Country Music Success Stories is now available on the Country Line app. Country Line is a UK-based media company with backing from the one and only Sir Elton John. So we're pretty pumped up about this development. For everything country, download the Country Line app today. Here's a question. Have you ever wondered about the role PR, that stands for public relations, plays in the development of a country music artist? Here's the answer. It's huge. So we sat down with Pam Lewis, one of the PR queens of Nashville, whose offices are located on Historic Music Row. And it turns out she's not only a PR pro, she got her start working for MTV in the early days of its rise. Remember the line, I want my MTV? And when she made the move to Nashville, she ended up working with superstars like Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers, the Judds, Alabama, and more. But it was an unknown artist who made ends meet by cleaning churches for a living and singing demos who caught her attention. I remember going into Bob's office, and here's Garth, and he's sitting, and he had his, uh, he had an Alaskan Malamute dog laying at his feet, and he's like, hey, ma'am. I'm like, don't ma'am me. We're like the same age. Hello. <laughs> and he was just very polite, and he starts playing songs. Pam would go on to manage Garth and to help Trisha Yearwood land her first record deal. There are so many stories to tell in this interview, and don't miss JC's conversation with Pam, too because she's full of wisdom aimed at artists who want to make that move to Nashville. Pam welcomed us into her conference room inside this craftsman-style house that is her office on Music Row. And the table was old and sturdy, but our conversation was deep and long, rooted in where she grew up and the values her parents taught her. I grew up in a little town called Red Hook, New York, which is a Dutch community. And my dad was a principal. My mother was a dental hygienist. And everyone else I went to school with either was a farmer or worked at IBM. So it's known as Macintosh country, lots of apple groves, plums, peaches, etc. Really pretty, kind of boring, really safe. I went to a public school, never had a car when I was growing up. And so I would ride my bike into town. I mean, we would like jump in a lake and go swimming. And I went horseback riding on the weekends at my granddad's. And it was pretty idyllic. What was the message in your house about values, what matters, work ethic? My father was one of 11 children, and he had this real kind of Huck Finn life. He was educated. He went to school on the GI Bill, got his master's when we were kids. So it was very much work ethic. It was very much like turn the television off, open a book. My father used to say, the more you have, the more you want. He thought we were incredibly materialistic, my sister and I. It was all about, you have to learn how to delay gratification. I didn't even know what gratification meant. I mean, he was like, you were supposed to delay it. (laughs) He was like, look it up. We had to write thank you notes. And my mother and dad would proof our notes before we sent them out. He was a great raconteur. I mean, bless his heart, he's passed away now. But he was just really funny. I mean, he was English, Irish, and Welsh. Lewis is a Welsh name. And he was the old guard, you know, he was the greatest generation sort of kind of guy, you know, and wrote a book. And he was very much into preservation, as was my mother, which sort of planted those seeds and very much into volunteerism. And he used to say, you know, you can't be depressed if you're helping someone else. 
He hated the notion of nursing homes. He said, you need to get out and work. You need to work in the yard. You need to keep moving. And I remember being home for Thanksgiving, Christmas, and I was out raking leaves with him. He was in his 80s. And I was talking to him and I said, Dad, what are you doing? He goes, I'm making up a song in my head. (laughs) So he told me, I'm like, you're making up a song? I said, yeah. He said, you know, I can't sing, but it's a cool song. He was a character. It sounds Irish like, Catholic, you know. Yeah, it sounds like your parents had an incredible influence on you. Yeah. My mom lives here now. I'm very excited to have her living here with me. Let's talk about early musical influences. All right, mother would put us down for our naps, my sister and I, and we had one of those uh, record players where she would stack the records. And, and then they drop. And drop, exactly. And so when I was a little kid, I mean, I'm talking like preschool, I knew every song from Sinatra, I knew any all the crooners, Perry Como, Andy Williams, Frank Sinatra was the primo, and my mom would save her money when she'd buy these records, and we weren't allowed to touch them. So I would be like, oh, the witchcraft, that cuckoo-cuckoo witchcraft, and I would sing just like him, and I would perform. So I would sit on this little ledge, and I would sing, fly me to the moon, and da-da-da-da, I mean, or Moon River, I would sing, I would croon. And they would laugh at me. I would kind of perform like, oh, Pam, you want to sing a song? And, you know, so that was what I listened to my parents' music and Sons of the Pioneers. And then I got into weirdo eclectic music. So I loved Cat Stevens. I loved Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. I loved the Four Tops when I was really little. I loved Barbara Streisand. I would sing all her songs, knew all the lyrics, funny girl, funny lady, stars born, knew all of that. So it seems like from a very early age, the music was in you. Did you sing in a choir? Did you sing in a group? How did that go? Well, I'm basically lazy. So every instrument I ever was supposed to learn, I I didn't ever want to practice. So I would like not practice the piano. I would not practice the clarinet the way I was supposed to. So henceforth, I never really learned. I I can sight read, but I've got a good ear and I can sing harmonies. And I was always in choir and performing, being in plays and whatnot. When you went off to college, did you know what you wanted to do? I know you went to Wells College, but you've got a BA in economics, marketing, and a minor in French and communications. Through that, I love the whole notion of advertising. If I could have gotten a killer job in advertising and then be able to write an ad that could then get on television, I would have thought that I had died and gone to heaven. So the whole notion of a music business degree, that really wasn't in the cards. I was talented, but I wasn't like the best singer, the best. I was a great kind of utilitarian person. And I wasn't knocked at gorgeous. So, you know, for me to be a performer, it didn't make sense. But my mom said to me, you got to study something that lets people know you're smart. You can't major, major in English, Pam. We're not paying this kind of money for you to major in English. That was literally a quote. So I was really good in any of the social sciences, you know, sociology, psychology, Math, I hated. I needed to be tutored in math, high school, college, calculus. <laughs> you and me, it. sister. <laughs> hated it. But econ was a degree that I could get where people would be like, oh, she must be pretty smart because she's an econ. So then I audited every English class I had time for. My mom was like, if you wanted to study English, just audit it. Take the classes and audit it. And I also wanted to live in France. And so that's why I took seven years of French and lived in France for almost a year. Let's talk a little bit about that, because I think that when you're that age and you get a chance to go to Europe and see the world outside of the United States, it's a huge eye-opening experience. What was it like for you to go to Europe? Well, I was really blessed by parents who would let go. I'm a homebody. I'm a nester. I'm a nurturer. But I love to travel. 
So you really, learn so much about the world, though, right? I think it's part of the problem with America. We don't travel enough, and we're we're very uh, lucky that we're sort of this big monstrosity, and we're we're we border Canada and Mexico, but we don't have to learn other languages. We don't have to learn other cultures. Whereas if you live in Europe, it's very common. Countries are the size of our states, and some of them even smaller. So I just think that it's extremely important to travel. There's a whole world out there. Well, you go to New York City as a New York girl. You end up in the big city. Loved it. Your early career there, unbelievable. You're working in publicity and marketing, 1980 to 1984. You're launching or part of the launch of MTV with Warner Amex Satellite Entertainment Company. What was that like? Talk about an exciting time in pop music, Mm. in media in general. Actually, cable television was really burgeoning then. And uh, Warner Communication had made a lot of money with the Atari game. American Express had made a lot of money with credit cards. They were flush with cash. And so this was sort of a way to stash some money, basically, and to start this new network concept. So we had the Arts and Entertainment Network, which was sort of what Bravo became. We had the Movie Channel, which was the world's first 24-hour movie channel. And we did something called Revolutionary at the time interstitial programming and what that was was interviews programming in between films so it would be an interview with francis ford coppola or an actress or actor ted turner partnered with us so he would come in the office john belushi would come in the office and i'm like this little kid you know it just was like uh, if i don't talk too much and i try to make myself scarce maybe they won't ask me to leave the boss was john schneider John Schneider had been the big muckety-muck at CBS. And when he retired at CBS, he came and he was my boss, John Schneider, and then John Lack. This is like being thrown into the big leagues. Totally crazy. It's hard to believe, but when MTV launched, it launched in the hinterland, in the heartland. It was not in the major markets that we needed to be in. And we needed videos. So the two major markets are LA and New York for the music business. We weren't in LA and New York. We needed Madison Avenue to produce advertising, to think that it was worthy of advertising. So part of my job was to get air checks and get reviewers to come in my office and watch MTV and explain it because you couldn't see it. So some of the people that might be listening might remember the campaign, I want my MTV. I want my MTV. That is basically a ripoff from I want my Mapo. Remember the I want my Mapo Cereal? The cereal. I want my Mapo. So we thought, well, if we can get Peter Townsend or Robert Plant or Paul Simon to say, I want my MTV or Billy Joel, maybe the cable networks will listen. And what started to happen is the record labels and the radio stations, they started getting requests and they're like, well, how are people hearing men at work and flock of seagulls? It wasn't because they had records out necessarily. It's because people in Idaho were seeing the videos. And that's really how it happened. Now, that's hard to believe because it's so ubiquitous now. But back then, it was all very new. It was fledgling. So I always say I was sort of in on a uh, phenomena at the Absolutely. time. Absolutely. And you know, the other thing that occurs to me as I listen to you tell that story is that our careers come in chapters. Mm. And in that chapter, you got thrown into the deep end of the pool. Totally. And very often, I'm guessing you probably were even afraid to ask a question because you didn't want to look like you didn't know the answer. But if you can be a sponge in a situation like that and just take it all in, there must have been so much learning from that that you've taken for the whole rest of your career. I was making $11,000 a year. 
I was living in a studio apartment on the Upper East Side. And I would try to work late. It wasn't difficult because there was always stuff to do so that I could take a cab home. They would let you, if you worked after seven o'clock, you could take XYZ cab home for free. They, you could put it on an account. We had an account with them. And I could make a little bit of extra overtime so that I could make ends meet. I think I was paying $400 a month, which was, it should have been a million dollars. Like it was so elusive to even think of 400 bucks a month. But the good thing was I got invited to parties. So I could eat, you know, I could eat and drink and go to parties and because of the, the connection with the music industry. You were promoted to national media director and you're sent to Nashville. Not promoted. Here's what happened. I was asked to interview for a job at RCA. So I had worked for four years for Warner Amex and I had kind of plateaued. So there was no place for me to move within PR and marketing. And I wasn't getting paid a whole lot. So when I got an offer to come to Nashville to interview for a job, I did not want to come to Nashville. I had visited Nashville with my family to see the World's Fair, which was kind of fun. And it kind of reminded me of upstate New York with rolling hills and it's a very pretty area, but I didn't want to live here. I was like too cool for school. I'm living in New York. You know, why would I'm working at MTV? I don't want to move in Nashville. So long story short, I called in sick. RCA sent me a ticket. I took a cab to the airport and I was just going to be there for the day and come right back. I bought a billboard on the way to the airport and I'm like, well, somewhere in the billboard, there's got to be a country section. I've never even knew where it, where it was, but I knew they had a country chart somewhere and I started leaving through it. And I think islands in the stream was like on top or close, close to it. And I said, oh, congratulations on Kenny and Dolly and islands in the stream. I had no notion I really didn't understand how publishing wrote. So I thought, well, Kenny and Dolly must have written this song. Like, I didn't know the whole idea about songwriters and publishing share. I didn't understand any of that. And I think, quite frankly, because I didn't want the job, they offered it to me because I was really confident. You weren't standing there going, please hire me. Please Not hire all. me. Not at all. And Joe Galanti, bless his heart, was from New York. So I think he saw sort of kindred spirit in me and hence the job offer. So I was madly in love with this guy and I thought, oh God, and I had to leave my family, my sister, my mom and dad. And I, I thought, well, I tried to talk him into, can't I just stay in New York? Like all the media is in New York or LA and I'll just fly to Nashville once a month. And they're like, no, the job is here. Can you imagine how ballsy it is to ask that of a major label? <laughs> so I did. Um, that's how dumb I was. So they moved me here. They gave me an expense account. Well, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. They gave me an automobile to drive, which, by the way, I had my driver's license, but I never drove. I literally had no car in college, no car in high school, moved straight to New York. So even though I had a license, I hadn't driven in years. Here comes Pam Lewis down the road in Nashville. I was mortified. I was <laughs> mortified. I'm like, okay. Put on your big girl panties. You've lived in New York for years. You can do Nashville. You start working with Dolly Parton, Kenny Rogers, Alabama. the Judds, Alabama. Bill Medley. Bill Medley, yeah. as in Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren's one of my favorite songs. Yeah, I've had the, the time Brothers. of my life. Righteous Brothers. Yeah, unbelievable. Any stories about working with these superstars? I'll give you a Dolly story. Einstein was a film that she did that was filmed in Leaper's Fork with Sylvester Stallone. Now, Dolly obviously was always quite buxom, but she was a little more curvaceous and had a little bit more of a booty back then. And we were shooting a video. And back then, you were not supposed to get in photographs with artists. I mean, there was no concept of selfies or anything like that. Right. It was like, that would be acting very gourmet, if you will. And so you, act, you had to act very professional. So I was acting as professional as I could be, even though I'm standing next to Dolly Parton, for God's sakes. <laughs> so she 
standing there and she looks over her right shoulder and this camera is kind of panning behind her and she says, y'all better use a wide angle lens. <laughs> I was like, I love it. She's very self-deprecating. But yeah, you know. Those are exciting acts though, oh my gosh. to be a part of. I yeah. mean, you know, we've had the honor of, of interviewing Naomi Judd and we know her story about Took them to New York signed. for the first time. Tell me about that. Okay, this is very bittersweet. Um, Naomi has really beautiful skin. And I remember she had a, a scoop neck outfit on. And I thought, oh my God, her skin is so translucent, you know? And she was ill. We didn't realize. I knew she was fatigued, you see. And I thought, well, we have to be sure that if we go out to, to eat, that she gets to bed early. And of course, her daughter was like raring to go. Let's go, right? But we had to take care of mom. And they wanted to go to Windows on the World, which of course was the Twin Towers. So I took them there for dinner. And Vince Gill, I love, he was one of my favorites and such a good, such a charming man, such a good charming. I will tell you a funny Vince Gill story. So I was really disbelieved in him, loved Pure Prairie League. So long story short, he, I loved him. Uh, Eddie Raven was on the label then. I loved Eddie. I was trying to get Rolling Stone to review an album that Vince put out called The Things That Matter. And I sent that project to Rolling Stone and of course, Rolling Stone to get a gazillion things and so I get buzzed by my secretary, which was, I'm like pinching myself. I have a secretary. Are you kidding me? So Erin buzzes me. She says, you're not going to believe this. I said, who's on the phone? She said, Rolling Stone. I'm like, shut the door. Are you kidding me? So I get on the phone with Rolling Stone and they're like, hey, we finally got a chance to open the things that matter, the, the, a project from Vince Gill. And we're doing a roundup story about artists who have moved from one genre of music to another genre of music. And we would like to include Vince. I'm like, oh, great. And I'm like talking like a blue streak. And he's an amazing guitar player. He's amazing. Blah, 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 blah. From Oklahoma, blah, 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 blah. So the next thing that happens with the guy on the phone says, well, you know, we're very political. We'd like to think of ourselves as a political cutting edge magazine. And not only do we talk about music, we talk about lifestyle and what's going on. And so just want to upfront tell you that one of the things we're going to talk to Vince about is his alleged homosexuality. And I about dropped the phone. I'm like, ah, uh, um, well, he's happily married and he's got a little girl and her name is Jennifer. And I, I don't, I don't think you have your facts right. I mean, I'm, I'm like, I'm, what am I doing here? I'm like, whatever. And all of a sudden, now I'm on the phone for probably 20 minutes, right? I hear this laugh and it's Vince. He, yes. what do they call that? He punked you. He totally did. And I'm like, I'm going to kill you. You know what he said? Because you really believe in me. I said, I did. I said, you... (laughs) And so to this day, if I see him, I'm like, hey, you've been in Rolling Stone lately? I mean, that was how many years ago? So he has a wonderful sense of humor. So let's go to 1985. You make a huge move entering Uh, into your entrepreneurial stage, as in Pam Lewis and Associates. No, because I got fired. (laughs) It's pretty scary any way you look at it, because you really are jumping off the cliff as an entrepreneur. In your opinion, what does it take to be a successful entrepreneur? I was one of about seven people fired that year. It was just a turbulent time. And I had like a me too thing happen to me, which I didn't even think of it as me too. I didn't think, well, maybe that was part of the reason I got fired until me too happened. That's how dense it was for real. I think what it takes is tenacity. I think you have to really want it and you have to be a self-starter. So for me, it took an IBM Selectric typewriter. <laughs> this is what I lived on. And I just uh, circle back Tony Brown, who was still 
friendly to me. Now we weren't like hanging out all the time. Right, he was a big Tony, executive at RCA. Yeah, yeah, he was Tony Brown and I was Pam Lewis. But this time he had gone to MCA. So he remembered me and he had Steve Earle and Steve Earle needed some PR. So he hired me to do, he said, you can do this. And he hired me to work with Steve Earle and he hired me to work with Lyle Lovett. And Nicolette Larson had a project and then they had the master series. And so I was making like $500 a month or something per project. I mean, not a ton of money, but added up, I could pay my rent. Isn't it so fascinating though, too? And I've, I've been learning this, the more interviews we do here in Nashville, relationships are everything. Mm. This is a community. Truly. I'll tell you what I learned also really early. I partied. I mean, I worked at MTV for bloody sake. You know, we had fun for real. In the 80s, we had fun. But when I moved to Nashville, I was like, you know what? It is a small town. There's only these few streets. Everybody knows what you do and they will talk. And being a woman, you have to work that much harder. You can't be running around like a maniac. You can't be doing drugs and alcohol. And everybody has stories about how, you know, you slept with this person, you did that, the other, whatever. So I kept my nose clean. I mean, I just realized that early on. And I think that's so true now with social media. And, and I, you know, we've had people that have applied and you go on their social media. I'm like, we can't hire them. We just can't. It follows you. It's like styrofoam. It never goes away. In the door walks this guy named Garth Brooks. I get a phone call from a guy named Bob Doyle. I don't know who Bob Doyle is. Bob Doyle works at ASCAP. We go out to lunch. Bob calls me again. We go out to lunch. Bob calls me again. We go out to lunch. And I'm like, is he hitting on me? I mean, why is he taking me to lunch? He had an expense account. I have no idea. Finally, after all this, I think he was feeling me out a little bit. I'm leaving ASCAP. I've met this boy. I've been trying to get him a publishing deal. No one will give him a publishing deal, but I believe in him. And I'm going to start a management company. And I need a partner. Would you be interested? So the boy turned out to be not a boy. He was younger than, a little bit younger than I am. It was Garth Brooks. So I remember going into Bob's office, and here's Garth, and he's sitting, and he had his, uh, he had an Alaskan Malamute dog laying at his feet, and he's like, "Hey, ma'am." I'm like, "Don't ma'am me. We're like the same age." Hello, <laughs> and he was just very polite, and he starts playing songs, and he was not hanging from the rooftop or jumping through water or fire or anything else. He was just singing a song. And there was something about him that I thought was really captivating. He had really cool eyes, blue eyes and everything. So I'm like, okay, maxed out all my credit cards. <laughs> and, you know, and Bob and I started working together and we formed Doyle Lewis Management. And that was like about, I don't guess, seven, eight year run. Got him his record deal, got Trisha her record deal, worked with a great group of guys called Great Plains, worked with Hank Flamingo, worked with Buddy Monlock, a folk artist, did some cool things. And uh, of course, most notably, Trisha and Garth. Let's go back to Garth for just one second. You had mentioned when you met him, he had these beautiful eyes, but there was something about him. We've been asking about how you know when somebody's got it. Because back in the day, when Garth was just getting started, he didn't have a hit yet. Mm-hmm. And no one would sign him. And we so how we got did passed you on know? 11 times. Yes. How did you know? Well, who we wanted was my old friend, Tony Brown. I wanted Tony Brown to work with him. And Tony wanted to produce him. So I, mean, I knew Tony pretty well. Bob knew Tony. But I knew him longer, probably, because of New York. Tony said, well, we just, you just need to meet Jimmy Bowen. We'll sign him. And we took a meeting with Jimmy Bowen and Garth blew the interview. I'm, I, we walked out there. I'm like, he's not going to sign you. And he didn't. He passed. How did he blow the interview? We were at Bowen's house and 
he started asking Garth about his musical influences, and Garth starts talking about Kiss, Towns Van Zandt, James Taylor, I mean, just totally non-country acts. And Bowen had just worked with a, a number of projects that were critically acclaimed but didn't sell. And I'm like, he's not going to sign you. Couldn't you say George Strait? Couldn't you once <laughs> say George Jones? I mean, you know, it just, there was something about Garth that, that Bowen passed. So we ended up getting signed at Capitol through a whole series of things that happened. But everyone knows that story probably. Sure. But any, anyway, it was not a slam dunk at first. And plus, Capitol did not have the deep pockets that RCA did and MCA had. And they're really nice people. And Jim Fogelsong was delightful. And uh, they gave us a chance, you know. But at the end of the day, Bowen, who passed on us, ends up taking over at Capitol. And then he got Garth by that point and and went and saw him perform. And he put all this advertising money behind him. He put a million bucks in. And that's when it really started to pop. But up until that point, Bob and I were like scraping our money together. But you so, believed in him. So I, believe, I would lay down in front of a freight train for him back in the day. I don't know why. I just believed in his dream. And I wanted other people to believe in his dream. And, and I loved his wife. And Sandy worked her tail off. And it was sort of like this hard luck story. And, you know, the little train that could kind of thing. And, yeah. you know, Clint Black was eating our lunch. I mean, eating our lunch. And I'm like, if I walk into one more record store and there's a stand-up, life-size Clint Black, I'm going to get sick. And, of course, he had rock and roll management behind him, and the same guy that managed ZZ Top was managing him, and they they had a, a non-return policy, and they stacked all the record stores with Clint Black uh, records. You know, Capital shipped like a 1,000 records to the Northeast. You know, that's it. So it was just like apples and oranges. It I mean, must have felt as if you were pushing a rock up the hill. Total but Sisyphus. once you got there... Total things really started to happen. Let's talk about Trisha Yearwood for just a yeah. second. Because you were the person who helped her get her deal at Absolutely. MCA. I've played She's in Love with the Boy many, many times. And I can remember sitting there with my headphones on, singing along with Trisha Yearwood. Tell me a little bit about meeting her and helping her okay. make that dream come true. By the way, I hate that song. I've never liked it, but I always knew it was going to be a hit. Very smart woman, great sense of humor. She had, was working at a record label. She was a receptionist. And I believe she's a Belmont grad. So, yeah, sharpest attack. Take me back to the moment that that song went to number one. You must have jumped up and down in your office. Oh, absolutely. Abs we were so thrilled. And I think it was, she was the first female to have a number one record out of the box, if I'm not mistaken. And I remember going to MCA with Tony Brown then, was there, and we're having a number one party. You know, So it's like, rewind the clock 10 years before, and we're backstage at a Alabama show and I'm working at MTV. So it's just really weird. You don't want to burn bridges. That's another lesson. I'm kind of bad this way because I feel like if I don't have anything that I can help someone with, like I don't, I'm bad about keeping in touch with them. So I, when I stopped working with Garth, I kind of had to lick my wounds and I kind of had to, I'm like, well, nobody wants to talk to me because I don't work with Garth anymore. It was the worst thing I could have done. It was the worst thing because mm -hmm. you still have to get out there because it's out of sight, out of mind. What happens to you with all your history of working with Garth up until 1994, right? You're driving along in the car and a Garth Brooks song comes on. How do you feel? Well, let's say the dissolution of the partnership, it took until 98. It took that long to dissolve it. It took a long time because we had a, I had a lawsuit with my partner, unfortunately. So it took a while to undo all that. And I went through a divorce at the same time. I, I always say what I a probably... a rough time in your life. 
Well, I think I had a nervous breakdown, but I was too busy to notice. I mean, truly. (laughs) Ain't it the truth? Let me tell you. And I will say this. See, this is also a cautionary tale. When I started to do well and make money, I just socked it away and socked it away and socked it away. I didn't blow it. I wasn't driving a Mercedes. I just socked it away. And I never gave up my PR firm. If Tammy Wynette doesn't give up her beautician's license, I don't have to give up my PR company. That's what was my argument. That's the truth. She never did till the day she died. Never gave up her beautician's license. PLA Media begins to thrive right here on Music Row. Yeah. In your opinion, limp, Pam, maybe we limped a little bit. I don't know how much we've thrived. But maybe we you limped and stuff. then you you ran we for hung sure. In there. Yeah. In your opinion, what are the key ingredients for a great publicity or marketing person? Okay, uh, a command of the English language is a good idea. Articulate good speller, creative. Most of my clients are independent clients. So the phones are not ringing, ringing off the hook. I don't, I'm not working with Kenny Chesney or, or really top, top acts. So we have to get creative and we have to be tenacious about it. We're constantly updating our mailing list. We're constantly going after new outlets and we're looking for new angles. So I think personal service, getting back to people. One of the things I realized working at MTV is I work hard and I'm honest and I'll learn the rest. So I think if you can have the wherewithal to do that and ask questions, don't lie. Be straight with people and give people good value. I want people, when they come to work with us, I want them to say, you know what? I got more than I paid for. They generally come back to us or they stay with us a long time or they refer other people. So to me, that's, that's all you have is your word. That's all you have is your integrity. There are so many chapters to this incredible life of yours. And I'm looking at your Life in politics and in public service, that's been a big part of your story. In the middle of all this success in country music, you run for alderman at large in the town of Franklin, Tennessee. What inspired you to do that? I got pissed is what happened. And when, you know, you do crazy things when you're righteously indignant. And I thought, well, I'll just run for office. And I was encouraged. I had people encouraging me. And I thought, you know what? When election day came, I thought, well... If I don't get elected, I will be really relieved because this is going to be a lot of work. If I do get elected, I'll learn something and maybe I'll get some good things done. So I only wanted to be one term because my dad was starting to get ill and I wanted to be able to go home to New York. And so I'm still involved in local politics. I just didn't run again. Now I'm now I sort of have the best of both worlds. I can get my calls returned. I know who, what to, how to get done, and I don't have to raise money. So yeah, I care about historic preservation. I, I was care just going to say that. Commission. I yeah. care about fair housing. I mean, I'm I'm looking at this body of work of yours and these passions, and we've got your involvement with the historic zoning commission and historic preservation in general, mm-hmm. and that brings us to your beautiful historic home. Yes, you guys have to come visit. Sometime. Can you tell us about it? Well, this is another... A labor of love. And serendipity. I looked for two years when I started to make a little bit of money. I had a, I had a horse I was boarding in Clarksville, and I would drive up there to go ride. And I thought, well, someday maybe I'll, I'll get a farm. I'll have some land. I'll be able to ride. And it'll be sort of a nice little chill place. And so I looked for two years in between managing Garth. And I didn't really find anything that, that spoke to me. And one day... Joyce Rice, who was at BMI, called me and she said, hey, Pam, I've got these people and they, we've got a business proposal we'd like to bring to Garth. And she told me what it was. And it was just to do a museum for him to buy this piece of property and do a museum. And I, I knew that was not anything he wanted to do at that juncture in his life. And I said, Joyce, you know what? I don't want to waste your time. 
I don't think he's interested. Oh, please. Oh, please. Just have lunch. Oh, please. Okay. If that'll make you feel good and look good with these people. Sure. So I went and had lunch with them. I took all the plans. I said, I promise you, I will, I will give him the, the plans. Um, but I, I'm just going to warn you. I don't think it's anything he's interested in. And so I said, however, as an aside, as I'm leaving the restaurant, I said, I'm looking for a farm. I'd love to get a historic place. If you know of anything. So this guy says, eh, I don't know if you want to see this. Just basically like that. I don't know if you want to see this place, but I've got a place in Franklin. And you know, if you want to come look at it, I'll show it to you. I thought, okay. So I got lost driving out there and I come over this hill, Winstead Hill, and I come down to this little valley and there's this brick house. I'm like, that cannot be it. It was it. And there's a big National Register monument up front. There's a marker. It's been there since the seventies. So that was a Harrison house. And I ended up being able to buy it. It was very reasonable. It needed, it was structurally, the bones were really good. And so I've had it since 93. Buying that house changed my life. And the story behind this house is that it had been built prior to the Civil War, but used during the Civil War. How? We had a skirmish in 62. We had a major battle in 64, November 30th. That's the one everyone knows about. Five-hour battle. There was only about 750 people living in Franklin, and we had 10,000 casualties. Hard to believe. I mean, it was Armageddon. So my house was the command post for Hood, who was... Fort Hood is named after him. He was the Confederate general. He went to West Point. He was seriously wounded. He had to be strapped to his saddle. He had an arm that had atrophied from a terrible wound in Gettysburg. So his left arm was in a sling. His right leg had been amputated just below the hip because of an injury in Chickamauga. And he was, I'm sure, drinking heavily and I'm sure using laudanum. And so it was a very foolhardy attempt to try to avenge the Southern cause. Atlanta had already fallen. So the house was a spy headquarters during the war. Annie Briggs Harrison had her meetings in my bedroom. And then it was also the command post. It was commandeered. And then thirdly, it was one of 44 field hospitals in Franklin. What has this house taught you? There are spirits amongst us. You know, a person's memory never leaves fully and that there's that it's imprinted on the world. And as long as we talk about them and remember them, they're still alive. And um, it's taught me tenacity. It's taught me, you know, at any place you live, you have to fix up, you have to paint, you have to maintain. So why not live someplace you love? And I, I wrote a book about it. It's called The Tennessee Yankee. It's sort of an homage to him. I'm not a professional historian. There are lots of incredible historic accounts about the Civil War and many other things. But I write about my experience. I write about how I found the house. I, I have a collection of some historic stories, but I also have recipes and I have some family information. It's really not a big book, but it was a lot of work. And so it made me appreciate authors. Last couple questions. Sure. We ask everyone who sits where you are. When an obstacle is in your path, how do you get around it? As I get older, I pick my battles. And sometimes there's an obstacle because God wants it there, for lack of a better word. God, Allah, Buddha, whoever. And maybe it's better to take another path. So I look at the obstacle. A, how big is it? B, how bad do I really want to get to the other side? C, is there maybe another path? Is there another goal that is even more important? My successes are the clients I work with, 
the buildings I save, the land I save, the scholarships I can provide, that kind of thing. But that's what I look at because that's part of what I am from a legacy standpoint. We're not going to be here forever. And so did you leave things a little bit better? That's all I'm trying to do. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? And can you pass that along? My mother uh, told me this one time, and she actually then had it calligraphied, and it's hanging in my kitchen. Love many, trust few, and always paddle your own canoe. Right now, from where you sit, Pam Lewis, what does success mean to you? To me, good health is the most important thing. Having people that respect me, hopefully, or don't hate my guts, and uh, I just have a great really good team around me. I don't take it for granted, any of this for granted. Let's say that a young artist walks through your doors, wants to work with you. What's the number one piece of advice you would give to a young artist? They have to want it more than I do for them. Fill in the blank. The key to my success in country music has been. Start by making your bed and get up in the morning and just keep showing up. And if you just keep showing up, good things happen. And, and just don't lose faith. And I will say this about everybody who wants to get into the music industry. Do anything else but. And if you get rid of every other option and there's no other thing that you can do to follow your bliss, if you will, then do it. Hi, I'm JC Don Valeris, your Music City mentor. Sitting down with a woman like Pam Lewis, who really has shaped the careers of so many artists, was such an interesting and informative experience. Whenever I have the chance to talk to someone like Pam, I'm always curious about what kind of advice they can pass on to young artists. I have to say that the answer I got from Pam was unlike any other, but it was also probably one of the most honest. I think it's important to start early because you want to be branding yourself consistently. And I've had clients come to me and they've spent their money on, on production. They've spent money on their video. They spent money on a wardrobe and they still don't know who they are. We have to try to fix what they've done or they've already been kind of ripped off. And I hate to say it, but that's, this is sort of a skanky business. It's not the, that's a, it's not pure as a driven snow. So I think it's important to have people around you who are helping you find your voice and helping you stay on track. I would say that there's a lot of, of parallels between the French wine industry and the country music industry. In the French wine industry, vinters will cut back the vines, the very delicate vines. They will cut them back because they want the vine to suffer, to produce the best grapes. And I would say that there is a part of this town that wants you to suffer a little bit. You got to pay your dues. And if you come in cocky, if you come in, I've got a ton of money and you're going to bankroll it, they'll take your money, but they won't take you seriously. Pam is right. Nashville can be a tough town. And that is exactly why only the best will rise to the top. So let's talk about this branding piece. The earlier you can grasp a hold of who you are, the better chance of success you'll have. And then a seasoned team of professionals like Pam will be able to come in and take your career to the next level. Here are my tips on what you can do to start branding yourself early, online and offline. First, you really need to develop a strong online presence. What does your digital persona feel like? When someone sees a photo of you, when they watch your videos, and when they see your posts on social media, what does all of that make them feel? 
It should be a cohesive thing that clearly represents you and your music. For instance, if your music is light, acoustic, and airy, then it probably wouldn't make sense for your socials and website to be branded with dark and heavy design features. You have to create an online experience that matches who you are as an artist. This also goes for your graphics. Your fonts, colors, and the way your content is worded are all representative of who you are as a person and as an artist. Next, make sure you have a visible presence everywhere. Even if you don't post daily on every single social media platform, having a cohesive presence everywhere is always a good idea. You'll attract different kinds of fans on all platforms, and the more you expand your visibility, the more fans will find you and follow you. Next, develop a strong offline presence. Everything I just mentioned about your online presence also applies to your presence offline. Make sure what you wear, how you interact with fans, and the way your stage performance is structured also represents exactly the artist that you are. Finally, if you're struggling with finding your brand, that's okay. Not everyone can figure it out right away. My advice is to consult with the people in your circle who know you the best. Ask them honestly what they find is most special about you, what kind of vibe they get from being around you, and what their favorite part about your music is. Take all of that advice into consideration to start figuring out exactly who you are as an artist. Pretty soon, your brand will be locked tight and you'll be ready to take your career to the next level. More wisdom you can use from Music City mentor, J.C. Don Valeris. If you liked country music success stories, we hope you'll spread the word about our podcast. Please leave a review as well and follow us on social at Country Music Success Stories. Our TikTok handle, Candy and JC, J-A-C-Y. JC Don Valeris is gathering up all the information you need to make it in country music. That is her specialty, and she's an expert on it. Check out Music City Mentor on YouTube. Our vlogs are there as well. They're pretty entertaining. We've got more legends to meet and stories to tell. This is Candy O'Terry saying thank you so much for listening to Country Music Success Stories, where the stars welcome us into their homes and tell us how they made it in Nashville.